Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Christian McLeod. Christian is a professional golfer turned luxury accessory designer. Your pioneering range of belts have wowed the fashion world and have featured in hundreds of magazines including iconic men's lifestyle magazine GQ. You've had celebrity support from Golf British Open winner Paul Laurie, actor James Sutton, footballer Derek Borigter, you've partnered with BMW, Aston Martin and Rocks, and your collection is stocked in Glasgow's most premium department store, House of Fraser. You were nominated for Accessory Designer of the Year at the 2014 Scottish Fashion Awards, and you won the Retail Trust Scottish Young Entrepreneur of the Year 2015. Amazing. Christian, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're absolutely welcome. You're absolutely welcome. So it's been a, an incredibly um, whirlwind few years for you. But um, before we get you know, fully into that, it would be great if we could start by hearing about you know, your background, where you grew up and, and really what you were like growing up. It's a very good question. I think uh, when you when you list all the, uh, the accomplishments I've done in the last two years in the beginning, it always feels a bit weird. You always kind of go, have I done that? I, yeah, really? Because yeah. you always get one job out of the way and then uh, you're straight on to the next. So you don't really get a chance to kind of celebrate an award that's been won or an a partnership or an achievement that's, that's been done because you're just straight on to the next one. Yes. Um, but my background is uh, not very like the usual fashion designer route. Um, <laughs> I, um, I was a professional golfer by trade. That was my what I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I competed uh, uh, around uh, Europe for a living and uh, used to teach quite a lot back in my hometown in Inverness oh, when I wasn't in tournaments. So I used to coach ages from seven years old all the way up to 70 wow. when I wasn't competing. And then obviously when it was time to compete, it was on a plane or whatever to hit a white ball around a field. <laughs> um, and uh, my golf career, uh, when I was younger, it's all I wanted to do. Like when you had like you know, the school holidays, I literally lived on the golf course like seven days a week. I would get dropped mm. off in the morning by my father and I would be there for breakfast, lunch and dinner and I would come home when it was dark. <laughs> Probably sometimes when it wasn't dark actually. <laughs> and um, and it's all I wanted to do. It's all I wanted to be in for future was to be a professional golfer. And I um, uh, was wanted to turn pro when I left school. When I left school at a very, very young age, I left school at 16 right. and with not a lot of qualifications to my name and uh, out of my group of friends in school I was always the least smartest I was always the funny one in school I was always the guy that always got chucked out of the class before this class had even started <laughs> um, just for making people laugh and or just school was a lot, it was a lot of fun school and uh, but my qualifications showed that I had a lot of fun and not really as much <laughs> paperwork yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, so when I left school at 16 years old at the end of fourth year fourth year um, I wanted to be a professional golfer so I worked in golf retail for two years because the youngest age you can turn pro is 18. Right. So I worked in golf retail where I could study and learn um, golf equipment and uh, the market in a bit more depth, the, which I kind of thought would hopefully help my game. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did massively. I got some great advice and really got an inside look into kind of golf. Yeah. And at 18 years old, uh, it was the youngest age I could turn pro and I turned pro at 18. And uh, I was on the kind of the circuit for a year and okay. uh, I was, uh, I came home from a tournament and uh, I broke my ankle uh, by uh, playing a game of football with some friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way we kind of did it was, uh, there was uh, we were wanted to only play for half the football pitch and we all stood in the halfway line. The last person 
to run to the goalpost and touch the bar went in goals and obviously nobody wants to go in goals yeah. so um, <laughs> we were all running flat out to the goalpost and uh, that day the field had been cut so the goalpost had been moved mm-hmm. and um, uh, <coughs> there was a hole from where the, ho- where the goalpost used to be but obviously because the field was cut there was grass in this hole that made it literally look like a bush trucker trial so <laughs> I'm running flat out and <laughs> fell straight into this hole and go yeah. Oh gone and uh, I broke it and tore something sh- stupid amount of ligaments and uh, was told by the hospital, the sports professionals, physios, everyone that I couldn't compete for two years wow. and to be told that you can't make money anymore about if the only trade you've got, the only kind of um, thing I did, uh, I, didn't yeah. have, I didn't have any trade to my name apart from golf, I could only hit a white ball and <laughs> it's what I focused on for my whole life to do that and um, when uh, to be told no and like you can't compete for two years so I had no money no income for two years yeah uh, I was like right what am I going to do and before this uh, there was um, in golf golf's a very very fashionable sport mm-hmm. so that's what kind of led me on to doing my brand right fantastic okay so I mean when you you injured your ankle then I mean what was um, you know the sort of psychological aspects of that how did you, you <coughs> sort of deal with that um, I think I did I, obviously my parents and my friends and my family were very very supportive and they're like oh no everything's gonna be fine you don't need to wait two years you can like it will it might heal quicker uh-huh. um, I remember um, it was a weird scenario when I broke my ankle because it was so big that when I went to the hospital they never picked up the break and I had a tournament the following week so I went straight to my physio the next day my own private one and I had him work on it Mm -hmm. so I hopefully if it wasn't broken could you try and pull the ligaments into place or I didn't really know how the system worked so I'm sat on his kind of like his bed if you like and um, he's, he's working on my ankle and uh, I remember him saying to me, Christian, there's something not right there, there's something moving. But that my ankle was so big, it was like bigger than like both of my ankles together. Both my ankles, oh. it was massive. If I showed you a picture, you would be sick. <laughs> and um, then I remember like going, oh no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Because I had a tournament the following week and it was for a really good prize money and I really, really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got back home and I was like jogging on my ankle, like absolutely going for it. And uh, <laughs> then it was literally the week before uh, no, the week after, when I was about to go into tournament, I get a phone call from the hospital to say, hello, is that Mr. McLeod? Um, we'd like you to come back into the hospital, please. Um, our um, resident doctor has had a look at all the x-rays over the week, and we're sorry to say that your ankle is broken. Mm-hmm. So then I went into the hospital, looked at the x-ray, and like I'm no doctor, but there was a big black line through my bone, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. pretty sure to me uh, that's broken. Yeah. Uh, so there we go cast on uh, 12 weeks up to my knee uh, okay. can drive can walk can anything and it really really opens your eye to kind of go um, when you see somebody with a disability you see somebody in a wheelchair and you before this you don't take a second look at it you mm-hmm. kind of just go oh but then when you do something like when you're used to having a shower yeah. with no limits <laughs> and then all of a sudden you've got a cast on mm-hmm. and you can't shower without getting this thing wet and the it's like going into an olympic level with gymnastics to try to shower like you just you're doing tricks all over the place trying to like get 
this cast not wet yeah. and it really kind of opens your eye to kind of go god if i was in a wheelchair mm. how hard would it be for me to shower on a daily basis and yeah. it, and it opened my eyes massively but then i thought to myself right i have to then uh, figure out a career path what i'm going to do that if i break my ankle again or if i lose an arm whatever i can still do it mm-hmm. because golf or any kind of sport for that matter of fact if you injure yourself career's done you mm-hmm. can't move forward yeah. um, and i learned quite a lot from having my ankle break yeah absolutely yeah i think people massively take for granted um health and well-being and it's massively. only when you don't have it you appreciate and realize that oh wow you know how bad it is totally 100 yeah. percent. okay so so i mean belts you know how did that that whole thing start what what was your interest in belts originally and why did you decide that that would be the thing that you would pursue you know instead of golf for that for that duration okay well before before i got injured it's quite a funny story because um there was only two brands in golf that were um kind of luxury brands in fashion mm-hmm. one was a brand called hugo boss and another one was called jay londonberg <laughs> uh, which not a lot of people have heard of but as a golfer you would have heard yeah. of it very very well and um because golf is very very fashionable um, and there was only two brands that were kind of leading the market, everyone was buying the same brands. Now, I would go to a golf tournament, any golfer would go to a golf tournament, and they would find that five other guys would be wearing the same outfit as them. And when you just spent £500 on an outfit, it's like Cinderella going to a ball and then somebody having the same dress on. So, as a golfer, you're very protective about your clothes and it just can't happen. You can't let that happen again. So, I started designing my own clothes. But what I was doing was buying like non-branded gear just polo shirts, because obviously golf you need to wear a polo shirt. And I was designing uh, logos to put on my clothes. So I had my wee CM, which was my initials, yeah. on my clothes. And I would like uh, get them embroidered, screen printed with my designs. And just so I looked different on the golf course. And I knew that when I went to the golf course and a tournament, nobody else was wearing the same clothes as me. <laughs> but the problem was, I went to every golf tournament where I only wore my clothes for two tournaments before my ankle break. and. When I went to my tournament, so many guys were like, Christian, where are you getting your clothes from? They are amazing. And I'm like, eh, eh, just the shop down the road? No, oh, what shop's that? I'm like, well, it's like right, left, and left again, left again, right down an alleyway. It was like a really, really old lady. It was like a charity shop. Like, you really don't want to go there? And they're like, oh, no, yeah. we need to go get this gear. So I'm like, oh, my God, everyone likes my clothes. But I never thought anything of it. I was like, oh, I felt like an even better player because I looked the part. And I couldn't play the part at the time, so <laughs> it worked perfectly. And, um, but the way belts came around, right, was um, when I got injured and I was like, right, I need to launch a clothing brand because everyone likes my clothes. But I didn't have the disposable cash and cash flow to um, have a full clothing range. And you see so many clothing brands come in and out, in and out of the market because they go too big and they go too small or they, they get big too quickly or like, how do you control it? Mm-hmm. So I was like, right, to build a brand, what's gonna give me uh, the best awareness for my brand? Mm-hmm. So number one was, if I design a buckle and a belt, uh, that gives me the biggest advertisement on somebody's outfit. Mm-hmm. Because as a golfer, if you win a golf tournament, you, they don't take a photo of you sitting with your trophy, they take a photo from you on the golf course. And when you finish your swing, the only thing you see mm-hmm. is your belt buckle. You don't see any clothes, you only see your belt. So that's why golf's a very, very, belt world everyone loves a good belt on golf so that's where probably my roots have come from it from yeah uh, second from that um i needed to, i needed to be on somebody's outfit seven days a week and if i say design t-shirts i'd have you wear the t-shirt one day and then the next day you get it washed and you might wear it again the next week the week after so i'm only going to be on your outfit 
one day out of 36 maybe mm -hmm. or two weeks 14 days whatever but if i design a belt i'm on your outfit seven days a week <laughs> so for building a brand i need awareness i need i don't want to see it so i need on your outfit seven days a week and the only way i could do that was a belt it's very smart for somebody that doesn't excel in intelligence at school. I was a late performer. <laughs> I was told that in golf too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the the process then in I suppose you know having your belts manufactured and designed <coughs> and, and all that sort of stuff. When did that come about, and how did you go about that? Um, so when I decided it was going to when it was going to happen, mm -hmm. and I wanted to make this work, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no like manufacturing experience. Of course. Yeah. Um, I love belts, obviously, uh, but I'd had like every belt going under the sun, <laughs> uh, and I'd kind of been like, right, I kind of like this thing, I like this thing, no idea what I was doing. And obviously, I couldn't fly anywhere because, so I couldn't even fly abroad to try and find factories because I had a cast on. Yeah. So I literally couldn't move anywhere because obviously, when you've got a cast on, you can't fly because of uh, your, you expand, so you would like swallow the cast mm. and you would. Uh, blood shock your leg and then I would lose my leg which we don't want no, no. so um, breaking an ankle was sore enough so um, <laughs> I waited till uh, 12 weeks was over and I got the cast off and I booked my first flight to Italy so I went to Italy by myself at um, this would have been at 18 years old <laughs> uh, d just back end of 18 didn't have any idea what I was doing I went over to loads of places and asked strangers excuse me can you tell me where the leather factory is please yeah yeah uh, there's one down here and I went in there and it would be like a handbag kind of manufacturer yeah. and I'm like hi I wonder if you can help me I'm looking to see if I can get some belts made oh no no belts around here so then it would like go to the next one next one next one and I found three that would make some belts for me and I remember showing them my drawings my logo what I was after it, the good thing about my build is I'm very kind of model material so I'm very I fit the size for all their samples uh -huh. so they had loads of samples there for me to try on which was fantastic because if I was, I just fitted perfectly for everything they, they did, so it was so much mm. easier for me to um, see it and what I was wanting to go in the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, right, here's my drawings, here's what I'm looking for. I want the belts to be reversed so like they operate and on a different way than anyone else. And I want the color to be different inside than it is the outside. And I can, ha can I have it a different leather on the inside than it is on the outside? And they were like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, this is not the way a belt should be done. Like, a belt holds your trousers up. I'm like, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's, um, and um, so I got some designs made and I flew back to Scotland. And they came in like three, four weeks later. And I'm thinking to myself, before they arrive, before they open the box, I'm like, well, do you know what? See if this doesn't work, I give it a shot. Give it a shot. Uh, and I've only got another year and a half to go until I'm uh, back on tour. So it's fine. Cool. Uh, and I opened the box and I was like, my god <laughs> they are amazing and it was just exactly what i would wear uh -huh. and uh i remember they arrived and i had my logo on the box outside the box i just felt like a business i felt like totally. i'd been taken serious yeah. my problem was when i was in scotland because i was so young um i never got taken seriously when i went to businesses so even if i went to like a solicitor or a lawyer or like um anything because i was so young walking into anything like Nobody took you serious. So mm -hmm. you would always get put to the back of the queue or the bottom of their pile because you were just a kid. So when I needed lawyers and solicitors to trademark my logo on a European manufacturer mm -hmm. and a European kind of um, uh, kind of basis, mm -hmm. I could have used somebody in MS, where I'm from, to do it all for me. But because they knew me, I was just a kid, um, they didn't take me serious. It's like if you went to the bank, oh no, son, it's okay, you've just got a dream. Don't worry. <laughs> no, you can't have this amount of money because you've got a dream. So what I did was, um, when I needed to get my trademark, trademark registered, 
I phoned the most expensive lawyers and solicitors in London <laughs> called Silverman Sherlocker. And uh, I phoned up. I speak a lot older than I look. So um, I phoned up at 18 years old and said, hello there. My name is Mr. McLeod. I'm calling from a company called Christian McLeod Limited. Uh, I'd like to uh, trademark my logo. Can you help me with that, please? And I worked with them now since I was 18. I'm now just turned 25. And I just met them last year. Wow. And they were like, oh my God, you're such a baby. How old are you? I'm like, I'm 24. And they're like, oh my God, so you would have worked with us when you were 18 years old? I'm like, that's correct. But the great thing was I, was, I managed to make this huge perception over the phone that I was a millionaire. So they were like, front of the queue, anything I needed. I remember I had like, I think everyone goes through difficulties with their business and um, like when you, you've got to protect your trademark and so nobody touches it. And yeah, I've gone through a few of my own battles. CM is a very popular initial <laughs> and um, with loads of kind of brands trying to come out with CM logos. And yeah. I was always a priority for my lawyers and solicitors in uh, London because I was a big customer to them over the phone. But if they'd seen me, it would've been a different ball game. They would've been like, oh, it's just a kid back of the queue. And it's just yeah. the way the world is though. It's like, <coughs> as much as we'll, companies will say and people will say, oh no, no, that's fine. Like, no, it, uh, that doesn't happen in our company. It always will. It's a, judging a book by its cover. It's, totally. It will always happen, always yeah. happen. So, so, I mean, that's really interesting what you said. You know, you, you basically, I suppose, convinced yourself that you were already a millionaire. Yeah. So where does that sort of belief and, and confidence come from? Uh, I think I could always see what I wanted to be. And I think, when I was in school, we always got um, business people or entrepreneurs come to the school okay. and they were like 45, 50 years old, which is not old at all. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and um, they would come to the school and they would talk about their business or what they do. And they were millionaires, like truly millionaires. And I always remember sitting there like 10, 11, 12 years old and thinking, I don't want to wait till I'm 45 to become a millionaire. <laughs> like, I don't want it. I like, I want it now. Like, oh, I want it like really young. I want to be a millionaire before I'm 30. Like. And then me thinking, well, I better start hitting the white ball. Better start playing golf. I want to be a millionaire. And then yeah. when that never happened, all I'm thinking is, Christian, you're not going to be a millionaire. So it's, it was uh, fun. But I think you either it's in your head. If if you're happy to work the Monday, Friday, nine to five, and live for the weekend, that's it. That's who you are. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no change in that. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, a Monday is as good as a Saturday. Every day is exciting for me. That's brilliant. I love that. Awesome. So, so, I mean, everything, I suppose, since then has just, like, exploded, you know? I mean, you're, you're in, um, like, GQ, and you've got these, these amazing partnerships. You know, how did, how did you get there? What was, the, what was the path? What was the journey? <coughs> GQ's a famous story. GQ's <laughs> a, probably my favourite story within um, my business. Um, I do quite a lot of after-dinner speaking now, where... Um, I always get asked to talk about how I got into GQ at a young age. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very, it's not a secret. Um, it's, it was a, a very, uh, uh, what's the word, ballsy moment of my life okay. uh, to be able to do it. And my mindset was uh, at 18 years old for my first ever collection of belts, if my belts were good enough to get into GQ, I knew it was going to work. But if they weren't good enough to get into GQ, I was going to quit. So my, my pinnacle, my goal was to be on the top end of fashion to compete against Prada, Gucci, and um, Louis Vuitton, Hermes, and Chanel. <laughs> if I could start on that level, I knew I had a product, and I knew my product was good enough to compete with these guys. I think you have to start where you want to go on. You can't start at a 50 pound belt and go, oh, the dream is to be selling for 200 pounds. Mm. No, this doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And um, my goal was, right, if I go to GQ, 
and I present my product and I try to get into the magazine to advertise or just get showcased in this magazine. If they want to showcase my belts, damn, I'm good enough to be in GQ and I know this is gonna work, let's put the foot on the gas. But if I go to GQ and they go, hmm, really sorry, your product's not good enough, mm. then I would know that I would need to make the product better before yeah. I started my brand. So I went down to London for GQ, obviously, which is at Vogue House in Hangover Square. But obviously I needed to get in an appointment. So I uh, made a day in my diary where I had the GQ day, it was written. And uh, I had my diary, I had my coffee, my pen, my calculator, um, my business card in front of me. I even wore a suit to make a phone call in my parents' house at 18. And <laughs> I phoned up GQ and they were like, Hello, Gentlemen's Quarterly. I was like, hello there, I wonder if you can help me. My name's Christian McLeod. I'm calling from a company called Christian McLeod Limited. <laughs> um, I'm looking to kindly advertise in your magazine, Gentlemen's Quarterly. Uh, could you kindly tell me the procedure to how I would do that? So the lady was so polite. She was like, okay, Christian, if you can tell me your website, please. I was like, yes, it's uh, christianmcleod.com. I was so proud. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> She's like, okay, she looked at my website. And at this point, I had one of my friends doing it from school. So it was horrendous. <laughs> no offense to my friend, but it was it was not GQ standard. Mm -hmm. So she looks at the website and she was like, <clears throat> right, Christian, you're going to have to come down for an interview um, to get into the magazine. As you can truly understand, I hope that GQ has a clientele. We have our own image, our own brand loyalty that we need to keep, and not everyone is allowed into this magazine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. No problem. She's like, oh, you're going to need to come down for an interview. So then she explains the interview process and tells me that the interview process to spend money with GQ to get into their magazine is a 16 interview process. Wow. So if you get through one, you get invited down again, you get invited down again, 16 times. And if you get through them all, you get in the magazine. But then I was so determined to get in and I think it was the pinnacle of fashion for men's fashion was to be in GQ. Uh -huh. So I needed to do it. And there's so many fashion brands out there to stand out as a young professional. You've really got to like grab the bill by the horns and go, I'm in GQ. And they go, oh God, everyone takes you seriously. Uh -huh. And because I was sick and tired of not being taken seriously with no matter what part of my business, because I was so young, I wanted to just go, do you know what? I'm, I'm like 18 years old and I got into GQ. So I went down to GQ for my first ever interview. And uh, I always remember, I'd never been to London by myself before. And uh, I, I checked into my hotel the night before, did the route on the subway uh, on the underground to uh, suss out where I was going and uh, I walked right outside Vogue House the day before and I stood there and I looked at the door for about 10 minutes and I looked like I was on everything possible to man and probably every man and his dog was walking past thinking oh what a poor boy he looks so tired and rough and like really going through a difficult time but I was just staring at the door over and over again and I was waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to walk in or out the door because what I was looking for was to see if the door was a push or a pull. Because the last thing I wanted to do was push the door when it was a pull. GQ um, receptionist see me muck up on the door and go, oh my God, who's that? And then everyone talking about how the guy mucked up before he even got in the building. So I think first impressions really do come for me. So I got into GQ um, and uh, had my first interview with a lady called Vanessa Kingori, which at the time she was... Um, very high up in GQ, but now she's the assistant to the editor, so she's even higher now. And um, so um, she was incredible. And I remember, like uh, when I walked in, um, I was getting myself in such a like a kerfuffle because I was like, right, I've got my product in this hand, I've got like my folders in this hand. Like, how am I going to shake her hand? <laughs> and I was trying to work out like how am I going to have it on one hand, <laughs> so then I could be free 
And then when I got out of the elevator to get to the top floor where she was, she walked out and she was so tall, like, and I'm six foot, and she was like six foot three. And I'm like, <laughs> and then she came down to give me a kiss on the cheek. And I never kissed a girl on the cheek in my life before. So it was, and I'm like, oh my God, I felt like I just like met like a young girl that just met One Direction. It was like ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And I've got all these stuff on my hands. It was ridiculous. So I remember sitting down, she was like, oh, Christian, do you want, would you like a cup of tea? I was like, yes, cup of tea, cup of tea. And I'm thinking, oh, great, I can get like two minutes to like relax a minute. And the tea was like there. And I'm like, oh my God. So um, getting into GQ was uh, an interesting battle and going down uh, through all the all the stages, getting through the procedures and uh, went down on my um, 14th, 14th time told that I uh, got into the magazine <clears throat> and uh, I'd been accepted with my product. But if I wanted to advertise, I needed a celebrity to showcase my product. I didn't need it, but to really stand out, I would need a celebrity to really make a difference in the magazine mm-hmm. and to give myself a bit of a benefit for what it was going to cost me in return. So um, I didn't know any celebrities and I didn't have the budget to get any celebrities, but I knew Paul Laurie, which <laughs> was a open champion, professional golfer, um, Ryder Cup player. Um, as a Scottish professional golfer, he is the number one in my eyes and he is... Uh, He's an inspiration to every golfer in the UK in more ways than we'll ever know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does so much for the game. And um, I knew Paul, and I said to Dylan Jones, which is the head editor at GQ, I said, well, I've got Paul Laurie. And he was like, Paul Laurie is not coming in this magazine. And I'm like, okay. Uh, Paul Laurie is not a fashion icon. Your position in this magazine is between David Beckham and Piers Brosnan. Paul Laurie is not coming in this magazine. Wow. And I'm like, well, I don't have anyone else. Like, <laughs> And he goes, well, you'll need to find somebody or you'll just have to wait until you can afford budget to get a celebrity. And I'm like, Jeez. well, how about, like, can I not, like, try and, like, reinvent him? Like, can I, like, change and reinvent him? And they're like, no, you can't reinvent Paul Laurie. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 can you give me a shot? Like, maybe I can try. Yeah. At this stage, I'd never done a photo shoot in my life. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I'm like, how hard can it be, right? So... I'm like, oh, I'll, can I can I reinvent? Can I reinvent him? And he's just like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, oh, let me try, let me try. And he eventually gave in and said, okay, try. Let's see what you do. So I left um, Vogue House that day and went straight to the airport to fly home. Bought every single magazine in W. H. Smith to try and get some inspiration to how I was going to make this guy uh, that was a 45-year-old man that wasn't a fashion icon uh, to make him look like the bee's knees in GQ. So I had this idea that Paul at the time was <clears throat> a wee bit overweight. I say that as polite as I can <laughs> if he's watching. <laughs> a wee bit overweight and uh, fashion's very, very th- thin and kind of pristine. Yes. Um, yeah. And it was trying to get to that. So I, I had this idea that I was going to do a photo shoot with water. So we would throw water onto Paul to change the shape of his body uh-huh. so you wouldn't see the full yeah, body yeah. you would only see like through the water mm-hmm. but it'd make a really kind of cool arty kind of shot and mm-hmm. um, now <coughs> we got him a suit that was too small for him uh, because it was going to be getting wet so it also when he put the suit on it pulled his posture up because it was so small i remember him trying to put it on and he was swearing christian <laughs> what are you doing to me and then we had him like pointy shoes and everything it was hilarious and uh, we had him in the shoot and put the clothes on and we had four people around him throwing buckets of water on him. 
but in the water we had uh, cutouts of wooden CM spray painted white and black lined with um, black mm -hmm. and in the water there was like 10 CMs in each bucket and when the water was thrown there was CM logos in all the water awesome. so when the shot was done you had Paul standing there giving you the thousand yard stare <laughs> with a belt on in a black suit and this water coming in splashing on his face his body everything but all the logos were in the product yeah I went back down to GQ with the product image put on the put it on the desk of the head editor and I got into GQ that's an amazing story <laughs> funny really that's funny. brilliant that's brilliant very uh, very inventive quite genius so how how instrumental do you think that has been to your overall success and and how much has that process that you went through developed you as a person I think um, the process I was never handed anything in my career as a golfer or handed anything as a fashion designer, but yeah. I think it really grows you to, um, you become very, very strong as an individual. And mm -hmm. uh, But I wouldn't have it any other way. I'd rather be told, right, Christian, you've got a thousand pound. What can you do with that? And really have to work hard to be clever with it or go, here's a million. <laughs> um, I think um, somebody, it was f funny with GQ again, they told me when I went at like 18, 19 years old, they said, how long do you think it's going to take you to build a luxury brand? I was like, hmm couple of years and they all started burst out laughing and I'm like oh great another uh, another kind of group of people that can't take me seriously uh -huh. and they were like Christian it will take you at least 10 years at least and I'm like no one and I'm now on like year eight seven or eight and I still think that it will take me 10 years <laughs> and uh, they know the onions so I'll give them that and uh, but it's like if it can be built overnight it will die overnight if it takes 10 years to build it will die in 10 years mm -hmm. like it Anything that's worth having has to take time, takes longevity, takes ages to build. It's like if somebody's buying a product, like you would much rather buy of a brand that's been around for hundreds of years because you know you're buying into a loyalty, you're buying into a trust and a history rather than something that's just popped up yeah. and it's in fashion and then in two weeks time, it's gonna be gone. So it's it takes a while to build up that up and I think it's telling yourself to have the patience mm -hmm. and seeing the end of the tunnel, seeing the light at the end rather than I want it now. It's good to have it now, and uh, yeah. but it's uh, if you can see the reward after it, it's great. Brilliant. So I understand that each um, piece that you create, there is um, this kind of like a rationale behind it, or you know, there's a, a reason that is launched on say a given date or something uh -huh. like that. Maybe give me a sort of glimpse or an insight into that. Okay. Uh, well. Um, like, so every belt that I design has a name. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, my two best friends uh, is, um, they're called Justin and Bradley Rizza. So I have a belt in my collection, which is called the Rizza belt. Mm. And most of the time when I design a belt, I get inspired by people that are in my life. So um, these two boys, uh, I remember when I just kind of was going out with them in the scene and uh, like, they were, they were very, very fashionable boys and they uh, were always wearing thin belts. But in golf, the only thing I knew was thick belts, like really big belts, big buckles, yeah. and being like, this is my belt. <laughs> but then these boys would have really, really thin ones. And it inspired me to design a really thin belt. So I designed a really thin belt, and I called it the RZA. And it was such a popular belt, it was great. Um, so that gives you an idea of like kind of how uh, a belt's formed. Every name that you see on a belt, there is a reason why it's called that. Uh -huh. And if you ever hear me speaking after dinner or publicly, or you ever meet me and you ask me about a belt, I will tell you the story of like who it's about. It's always about a person. And uh, each leather is also about a person. So like say there's um, a, there's a Chaya um, leather, which is after a lady 
um, from back home called Leanshire, which is a very, very close friend of mine and uh, people that have helped me on my journey to get to where I'm at today. Mm. Um, and I'm very, very, very thankful for that. I'm very, uh, I remember where I'm from. I remember everyone that's helped me on the way up. And uh, I do little things like, well, here's your belt after you. So people get to see their name in the collection worldwide and internationally, mm. and it makes them happier. But on top of that, the last couple of years, we've done a lot of events and a lot of brand releases in big stores. Mm-hmm. And every time a brand uh, like release is done or a new product comes out or a party is done, uh, it's on a date that means something to me. Mm. So like, so we have the 2nd of April, which is the first ever issue of uh, my GQ magazine. It's like my anniversary. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, mind being married to GQ. It seems to be the only thing that's working at the moment. So, <laughs> it's, um, um, so I was like, uh, so 2nd of April was a very, very important day for me because it was the first ever issue of GQ. Um, the 16th of October is a very important day for me because it was the release of my uh, Derek belt, which was uh, uh, the annual p- kind of like party where we did this big launch for it, but it's also the birthday of the gentleman it's about. Hmm. So every day has a connection and a reason to it, which makes it very, very personal to me. Yeah. So my brand, I would say, is very, very much a personal perception of me yeah. and what I like to wear, what's going on in my life, the books I read, the hi- movies I watch, the history, my family, everything, it's all me. Yeah, excellent, love that. So in September 2016, you launched the Blue CM campaign in aid of um, Teenage Cancer Trust. And I mean, I, I saw pictures and stuff from the event, it looked incredible. It's very blue. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, blue. <laughs> the, uh, the Corinthian Club, is like five floors and like packed, was it 2,000 people? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. So why is, is that a cause that you decided that you wanted to support? Um, teenage cancer trust, I think, because um, I am young. Mm-hmm. Um, not anymore. I'm 25, halfway 50. <laughs> and young. oh my God, <laughs> feel so old. And um, I think because of me, um, firstly, why I wanted to support teenage cancer trust is because uh, when I was younger, the person that got me into golf was one of my cousins, which mm-hmm. um, he was a twin, uh, and his, the twins were called Michael and Neil. And Neil. Uh, Michael and Neil were both amazing golfers that got me into golf. They're my family, they're my cousins. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Neil, unfortunately, had bowel cancer and he oh. died at 21. Jesus. 21. Yeah. And uh, for somebody that I grew up with on the golf course, to like, I'm like, I want to be him. Mm. And for him to then die like instantly um, was like quite a big part in the family, you know. It's the first time I cried at a funeral, probably. I'd only been, it was like my second funeral. Mm. And um, it's quite a big part. And I always said that. Once I get big enough in mm-hmm. a, any industry I want to do, I want to do something for Teenage Cancer Trust because that's the charity and the units that looked after my cousin Neil. But on top of that, what also makes it more personal again is because mm. if I was to get cancer, touch wood, mm. um, that's the charity that would look after me because they look after every young person diagnosed with cancer between the ages of 13 to 24. So that would have been, when I did the event, yes. if, I was to get, if I was to take them well, that would be the charity that would support me. And I'm very much for um, like supporting something that is going to look after people with cancer in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not too... Obviously, I'm interested in cancer research, but I don't want to give my time and money to something that's not going to be um, sorted in my lifetime. So yes. I want to be trying to put uh, something on and support something that is going to support my life and the people around me in my lifetime. And mm. if Teenage Cancer Trust is going to help young people that went through the difficulties I went through as a young professional to be taken seriously, etc., etc., and um, young people 
to um, if they've got cousins or if they've got family that have been affected by cancer. Mm. That's a charity that has a very, very strong personal connection to me, so that's why I support that one. Brilliant, yeah, and I think it's, it's awesome that you're you know a socially conscious brand that's looking to help a, a massively worthwhile cause. Yeah, yeah, So thank you. Yeah, no, definitely, that's great. So I read that, you know, you, you originally, when you set out on this journey, you wanted to be, I suppose, the, the Christian Louboutin of belts. Uh-huh. But, I mean, your range does appear to have sort of diversified a bit. You have cashmere ties now, and uh-huh. um, you're doing some other leather goods. So where, what's your kind of vision for the brand? Vision now? Where, um, where do you see it going, yeah? I'll be honest, um, like, so of the Watts cashmere ties, uh, it's just a limited edition piece. Okay. So it's just an, an extra wee thing we did for Christmas to say you could have something limited edition where uh, it's not going to be done again. <laughs> so occasionally we might drop things that are like like a handbag or we might drop some luggage, but it's, n- it's very, very limited. Um, but we are the belt brand, like that. Um, like that's what my baby is. Like I want to design the belt and then you have to pick something to go around the belt. The way people buy belts right now is um, they buy their outfit and then they go, right, I need a belt to match my shoes. So they go into a store and they look for a belt. But I want people to go, do you know what? I need a belt first, then I'm <laughs> going to design the outfit around the belt. Nice. Like I could literally wear black seven days a week and have a different colored belt on every single day and it would look like I was wearing a different outfit seven days a week. But most people, what they do now is they have a different outfit for seven days a week, but they wear the same belt every se- every day of the week for the seven days. And because eye level is by level everyone's <laughs> eye level is on belt. So the only thing you remember is a belt. And if you've got a scabby, brown, golden, wooden belt that most guys do, it doesn't attract the ladies, guys. So it's uh, <laughs> it, it needs to be done. I mean, I, I love your, um, it's so like visionary and it's so kind of avant-garde, the way that you see things, it's uh-huh. just completely different. I'm absolutely crazy. I don't know where I got it from. <laughs> it's My brilliant. head is bonkers. It's it's ge- <laughs> well, cra- crazy is genius though, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you see it like that. <laughs> I think so, I think so. So what's it like seeing people that you don't know wearing your, your belts? It's always a great thing. It's like uh, when you walk down a high street and you see people that don't know you and you don't know them and you see your belt and you're like, yes, that's my belt. <laughs> but like I always remember the first time I ever seen somebody wearing my belt was a horrific story. I don't tell a lot, but I'll tell you. Okay. And um, I was in a nightclub in Aberdeen. I was very young. I was, uh, well, it was just when the belts came out. So it was eight, I was 18, 19 and uh, my friends, uh, and I decided to go out in Aberdeen. So we went to Aberdeen, went to this nightclub, and um, uh, I went to the toilet with my friend. Um, so we had each other's back, just in case anything kicked off, like you do when you go to a nightclub. And uh, very young, and uh, I think we were drinking like this thing at the time called VKs, which is like pretty <laughs> much like a blue wicked. Yeah. And uh, yeah. uh, we're so young, so young. And um, we're at the club, and we're like doing our thing. And I went to the toilet, right? And I was at the toilet, I was at the urinal, and it was a very, very old style urinal where it wasn't like individuals, like what you used to get in like primary school, but it was like a long one, so everyone could see each other taking the toilet. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I go into my space, <laughs> and I look left and look right, and just to make sure like I've got my surroundings and everything's clear, <laughs> and I look right, right, and then I look back, and then I look right again, right, and this gentleman is got his trousers open to take the toilet, and his belt is obviously like open. Okay. And it's my belt, right? <laughs> and because I am not 100% sober right now, I should have probably acted a wee bit better than what I did. Okay. And I kind of grabbed his back and went over and was like, mate, oh my God. <laughs> and he's obviously thinking I'm looking at his <laughs> yeah, private yeah. area like, mate. And so his reply was, excuse me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm like, 
Oh my god. Oh my god, mate. And I'm like, Justin. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. This guy. Oh my god. And this guy is going mental. Absolutely <laughs> ballistic, which he would, because this guy had no idea what I was doing. But I was so like happy and like it was such a shock. So we're in this toilet. All of a sudden this guy's had enough. There's punches flying in the room, uh, in the toilet. No it's a huge fight. Oh Bouncers are in. I get pulled out. I'm in handcuffs. I'm in the back of a police car. Um, I've been punched. I look like I've just gone through the wars. Jeez. All because I've seen my belt for the first time. And the police officer's like, so what, what happened? And I was too embarrassed to say, he had my belt on. So oh, I didn't want him man. to. And I could have stopped the whole thing and be like, mate, you're just wearing my belt. Yeah. But then it's, I think I didn't want him to let him know who I was because then he would go, oh my God, have it back. I don't want another one again. But then he'll buy another one and another one and another one. But yeah. it was a uh, yeah, really funny moment in my life. It's <laughs> trying to, first ever time I've been lifted by the police because I saw my belt. <laughs> Unbelievable. <Crazy>. Unbelievable. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I think is absolutely brilliant is uh, your, your recent sort of partnership with Aston Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, which are you know massively iconic British brand, incredibly um, luxurious premium brand. So how did how did that come about? Uh, Aston Martin. Well, before Aston Martin, I worked with uh, BMW, which BMW were fantastic to work mm. for. And what mm-hmm. would happen was we would do an event, what a photo shoot, and we would borrow uh, and kindly get lent uh, some cars <laughs> to have them in the backdrop or nice. at events, and we'd have our guests picked up by uh, our clients. Um, then Aston Martin came around where um, I purely uh, got contacted by Aston Martin to ask if it was something I could see myself doing with regarding photo shoots and hosting that events again. Um, I had their contract for about a year um, and the contract finished and it, it was great, Aston Martin, if I, it's a very, very powerful brand and uh, the perfectionism from it is to a different level than I've ever known again and I learned a lot from it, yeah. and, uh, but now I'm back to BMW. Okay. BMW's fantastic. Oh, oh of course. Yeah, I yeah. love BMW. Yeah, yeah. I think what's good about BMW is like, it's a, it's an exclusive car, but you see a lot of them. They're mass. Mm-hmm. It's very on a similar wavelength to what Maya brand is. I'm trying to get on somebody's outfit seven days a week. I want it to be a lot. Aston Martin's so premium. It's very much, um, it's a rare occasion you see one. Yeah. Um, and when you do see one, it really does turn heads. Uh-huh. Um, but it's trying to get your brands matched in a partnership to what to so you're looking for the same customer and uh, which makes it a wee bit easier yeah yeah that's interesting so do, do you think your belts are accessible to the the sort of the average yeah i would person? say so yeah definitely i yeah. think as well it's one of those things that it, it's exclusive uh-huh but you it's affordable but some people would go 200 pound on a belt no chance uh-huh. but then they could afford 200 pound on a belt if they liked it yeah um <laughs> or they could save if they wanted it. But then if you come to the door and go, here, uh, here's the belt, it's a thousand pounds. You go, no, don't even touch it. Don't even entertain it. So it's kind of like the Aston Martin. I think like the, the, the very, very luxurious world is 4% of the world. So that 4% is enough to make these kind of brands operate, but mm-hmm. um, not for a startup or like for somebody that's like trying to pursue. Yeah. Uh, back when I was like 16, 17, 18, like, as a startup, you've really got to identify what you are, get your price point right, but also where you see yourself moving forward in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent advice. I like that a lot. Okay, Christian, it's been uh, it's been great to to 
kind of get to know you and I've really, really enjoyed a lot of your kind of stories and you're a great storyteller. <laughs> but I think, you know, it'd be really good at this stage to, to kind of delve a little bit deeper and, right. and really find out about, you I'll know. I'll take a bit of water for this <laughs> one then. <laughs> you might need it. <laughs> so um, this show really is all about, you know, pur like purpose, you know, what what is your purpose and how do you <coughs> define that and, and, you know, how do you go about finding it? So for you, what, what is your purpose? My purpose? Um, that's a very good question. I think my purpose is to uh, be the coolest take on the waste, right? And be the most exclusive belt, the most uh, well-known belt in the world. Um, my purpose is to change the perception of how belts are worn and not only be something that just holds your trousers up, but has, has uh, as, as important as a pair of shoes, mm -hmm. a watch, uh, watches are very important because people are very, very brand orientated with watches. Uh -huh. So are shoes. But a belt gets forgotten about. Hmm. But it's also one of the things that you wear seven days a week. You're not going to wear the same pair of shoes seven days a week. You wear the same watch, but that's why people spend thousands on thousands on watches. Yeah. Why can't a belt be th is that as important? But I think um, hmm. on top of that, my purpose is obviously on stage when I do quite a lot of after dinner speaking, when I get people, let people come inside my brand and see it from my eyes and what I've done. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people think the rise is kind of like whoosh, you, you, the only way is up, but there is a massively squiggly line between Christian McLeod the man and Christian McLeod the brand, yeah. and it's quite good to let people to come in and you tell them what everything means, mm -hmm. and it's uh, you, you you kind of um, uh, get to get lots of opinions and you see when people get to see you in person and you, your face comes to the front, forefront and you tell them your stories. It, it, it's always an inspiring piece. It's just as good as somebody wearing your outfit or, or somebody wearing your belt on their outfit. Yeah. It's a great, great experience being able to tell your story or over stage to thousands of people. Absolutely, yeah. And so, I mean, what, so, so kind of subsequent to that then, what would you like your legacy to be? I think um, I would love to be remembered or like to be known for um, my belt design and how uh, he was the guy that changed the game a wee bit uh -huh. regarding belts. It's such like fashion's the biggest industry in the world and it's a very, very competitive market. But I, I would love to be known for the guy that kind of mixed up the world a wee bit regarding that. But I think, um, <coughs> I think uh, you, no matter what you do, I think you, you always have customers that love your product. You always have customers that don't like your product. You always have, you, you can never ever please everyone mm -hmm. for what you do. And I think what highlighted that for me when I was going through my stages of my business, I always thought that I would try and please everyone. I was a yes man, I said yes to everything. I tried to really make everyone happy. And then it was only um, watching the Brit Awards one time that I realized that I was never ever gonna achieve it. And um, I always remember watching Madonna when she came back from like her comeback and she mm -hmm. was doing her big performance on the Brits. And um, like Madonna is the queen a pop queen of music. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves Madonna. Everyone <laughs> loves Madonna. And when she came back, everyone was so excited to see her performance. And she came up and she had her cape around her neck. Everyone remembers it. And she went up the stairs and the dancer pulled off the cape for the cape to come off. But it was still tied and she couldn't get it off. And she fell down a fleet of stairs. And the lady was 55 years old and she fell down a fleet of stairs. And all people could comment was, ha ha ha, look at Madonna. And I remember being on Facebook and social media that day and literally every single person was making fun out of it. And I'm like, right, okay, that is Madonna. If Madonna can take a slate, like mm -hmm. if, Mad if people are like laughing at Madonna and nobody can be like, 
um, oh my God, is she okay? The best thing about it was she got up at 55 years old, rocked the whole routine, danced hmm. around better than any 25 year old would do, <laughs> sang it and got up like she didn't, didn't care. Yeah. And like the stairs was like, I hate this room. And like Jeez. she completely like, it would have been so sore. And the only thing the world could have done was like laugh about her fault. And if people can, if you can be that high in your career like, as Madonna and people to then laugh at you or try and pull you down, it's, if you think that you're going to keep everyone happy, you've got to think again. I think like another, on a, on a golf scenario was um, Rory McIlroy, which is again, like kind of like the new Tiger Woods. Mm. He's from Ireland, a young guy, but he was making massive waves in golf. And um, he was attracting the biggest brands in the world. So obviously Nike came along and said, Rory would like to you to play Nike. And obviously as a young professional, he's like, yep, he was like 22, 23 at the time and got offered a 20, 250 million pound contract to Ooh. play with Nike. So he's like, obviously, yes. Uh, <laughs> it'd be silly if he never took it. But because he changed his whole bag to a set of golf clubs he'd never played with before, the whole world was against him because he couldn't play well in the first day because it took him a wee while to get used to. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, he was getting such bad press, like, oh, God, he can't get used to his new golf clubs and blah, 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 and, like, this is not great and everything. And um, it wasn't good at all. And uh, people forget that he's not a robot. He is a person. Mm -hmm. He's got feelings. Like... If he's feeling good, he'll play good. If he's feeling bad, he's not going to play well. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a golfer or you're a fashion designer and you're in this scenario, you help and support each other because you know the personal kind of battles you go through. Um, and I remember I was at the Scottish Open one year and Phil Mickelson, which is also a great iconic um, golfer, mm -hmm. was getting interviewed about his new golf clubs, but because of Rory McIlroy. And <laughs> the Rory McIlroy press was going on, but because they support each other, his comment was fantastic. So this interviewer is speaking to his caddy called Bones, and a, he's a very famous caddy, Bones. Yeah. And he's interviewing Bones, and he's like, so Bones, we see, um, that's my American accent, <laughs> by the way. Pretty good, I know. And he's like, so Bones, we see that um, Phil Mickelson, Phil, has got um, some new Callaway irons. Um, how long did it take him to get used to them? Did you hear like Rory McIlroy's not getting used to his golf clubs in like a month? Yeah. So he's just like, <laughs> laugh. And then Phil shouts over when he's warming up, having a swing, goes, Bones, what is he asking? And uh, Bones is like, Phil, he's asking how long it took you to get used to your new Callaway arts. And the, the comment, like the, the press person is obviously really excited. So now he's got Phil Milkerson to speak. And Phil's like, so what was it, Bones? Four, five, six minutes? And it was just hilarious <laughs> because it was just like, he was just like winding them up to, to like just making them bounce with each other. So yeah. I think once you realize that you can't keep everyone happy, got to do what's right for you then you'll succeed. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And so uh, how, do you, how do you deal with kind of haters? Haters? <laughs> I don't have a lot of them, thank That's God. Good. Touch wood. Yeah. I, I've never really had haters. I've been quite lucky that way. Uh -huh. I keep myself to myself. I let my brand do all the talking. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've got a very, very tight wool pack. I've got some great people around me, great positive, but they're very, very honest to me. They don't feed me ru with, with rubbish. Yeah. Um, I think the best probably person I've met recently um, a couple of years ago, I met Derek Borichter, uh, which is a professional footballer. Mm -hmm. uh, he is Dutch, and it's the first person I was the first person I was around that was from Holland. And the Holland way is very direct; like they don't beat around the bush. And mm. I've been used to British, where they don't like to say no, but in Holland, there's no beating; it's straight to the point. And I learned so much of Derek to why I could say no to people and. 
I remember like I took Derek along to a meeting one time and like he's literally one of my best friends now and um, I didn't want to do something but I said yes and he was like come on man <laughs> why did you say yes when you don't want to do it just yeah. say no man and I'm like but then I don't want to hurt their feelings and he's just like well you're hurting your own feelings yeah. and he opened up my eye in a different way than I'd seen to actually how to be a better person and how to get more out of my business it's really funny in the last two years my business has gone a lot better uh, and exceeded so much more because it's got history behind it and because I gave myself a bit of a new eye to how I needed to speak so I would say I'm kind of I'm kind of partly Dutch now and uh, <laughs> I'm actually going over to Holland for New Year but I think um, I only know a few words but it's always rude words you know I don't know why you always learn them ones first uh, but he taught me so I'm blaming him <laughs> excellent excellent okay how do you define success uh, success I think um being happy, I would say. If you're mm -hmm. happy, uh, you'll do everything well. If you're excited, you'll do everything much better. Like when I'm excited and I'm designing or if I'm drawing, everything will feel so much better if you're excited. Everything is so creatively better because you're excited rather than if you're down. You can't yeah. do anything. Like I think everyone has a wee personal hurdle emotionally, like personally and businessly. And when you're down, you can't do anything. So if you're happy and excited, Everything is better. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> One of the questions that I had for you um, was about, I suppose, some of your, you know, um, maybe positive habits or some of your kind of success secret type things. Uh -huh. And it's interesting because off camera we got speaking about your your glasses. Oh, right, my glasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh -huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tell us about the glasses and uh, how that came about. Right, I, uh, I always carry a pair of glasses in my pocket, right? And uh, these ones are from a, a, a friend that designs glasses uh, called Stefan Hunter. He has a company called Iola. Okay. So um, I hope he pays me a lot of money to do some brand awareness there. <laughs> and um, he does amazing glasses, right? But the problem is, uh, there's no problem, but what I have in my glasses is, um, I always carry a pair in my pocket. Now I don't wear glasses, right? <laughs> and, um, but it's a, it's a safety net for me. So when I went to GQ, I was very, very nervous as an 18 year old to deal with the biggest names and the biggest influencers in fashion for a 16-stage interview in front of 14 people to try and tell them that I could compete with Prada. Mm -hmm. So I was very nervous, but my concept was, how am I going to make myself feel cooler, feel, make myself feel a bit more confident? And it's like if you're in your car. If you're in your car, you put your Ray-Bans on, you put your sunglasses on, everything feels cooler. You <laughs> feel so confident, you feel like you're cooler than cool, and nobody can touch you. Yeah. You're driving your car thinking, I'm the man, right? See the minute you take your glasses off when you've got to go into the supermarket. You're like, oh, back to being Christian. <laughs> Here we go. And uh, when you get back in the car, sunglasses go on, feel so confident. So my idea of it was, if I went to GQ, I needed a pair of sunglasses, but obviously I can't go into GQ wearing sunglasses. Yeah. It's, you just can't walk inside with a pair of sunglasses because <laughs> yeah, they're gonna go yeah. like, get out the door, mate. <laughs> so um, I went into an optician and asked for a pair of specs that were clear lensed. And uh, I, I remember I bought these like, for the first time when I was going to GQ, I bought these like Prada specs, clear lens, and the lady looked at me like horrified that I wanted glasses and I didn't need glasses. And I just wanted clear lens just as a fashion accessory. Yeah. Um, but what I would do is I was carrying them in my pocket. So when I went into GQ, I had my glasses on because I felt cool, felt that layer of confidence. And then when I started to relax, the glasses came off. 
So I always carry them. If I'm ever nervous or ever in a situation that I don't feel comfortable, the glasses go on. So now you know if you ever speak, see me on stage or you see me doing anything in business or anything in work or anything, if I've got glasses on, something is wrong. <laughs> it's a great tip. I really like that. It's my safety net, that's all. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, who or what inspires you? Um, who inspires me? Um, my dad. My dad inspires me in more ways than I'll ever know. Um, he was the only guy that believed in me when I started this, and my dad's quite a powerful person um, to me and my sister, where he he's our best friend, but he's had us very, very disciplined okay. uh, as, as, as kids. Like my dad used to do this really, really funny thing when... Uh, like we we stay on this crescent back home and it's like there's like 20 houses but all the kids used to play together so at night when I came home from school and I would go out in the crescent to play with my sister and all the kids we'd always be inside somebody's house playing the xbox or outside my dad could whistle really really loud right <laughs> from it just from his mouth with no fingers and when dinner was ready or when he wanted us in he would stand at the front door and he would whistle right and no matter where you were like the crescent was like a mile long, right? No matter where you were, if you were in somebody's house, I could be the, a mile away in somebody's house on the Xbox and I could hear the whistle. It's ridiculous, right? And everyone used to laugh at us because my dad had us trained like dogs, right? It was like, whistle, our tail would go up. And I remember we would run to the front door and shout, coming! And he would hear us, right? It was just like, it was amazing. And like at the time, I, I loved it because it got me so disciplined and got me so respected to well-mannered and what I needed to um to, to respect others um, but he is my biggest inspiration is my father awesome yeah I actually um, in doing my research I came across um, it was an article and it was it was kind of a quote that you had said and it was talking about your dad and it said that um, basically your day I suppose is broken into parts so yeah. it's like you've got eight hours that you work yeah, right? yeah uh -huh. you've got eight hours that you have to sleep uh -huh, uh -huh. but you've got this other kind of residual eight hours and whatever you do with those hours is kind of your own choice yeah totally yeah, yeah. It's such a that's such a great piece of advice it's uh, I think like when, when I wanted to start this obviously I didn't only knew golf and I said to my dad I wanted to do this and uh, we were on we were in a holiday at Spain at the time and I'm like, oh, I want to do this. And obviously, as a young guy, I was very enthusiastic about it. And I was like, I want to do this, Dad. I want to do this. And he was like, okay, cool, cool. And he was so like, it didn't look like he was bothered about it. And I'm like, why is he not bothered about this? And then one day he goes, we were at the beach. And he goes, so you want to be successful, yeah? I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, okay, let's go swimming. So I went into the beach, right? He goes, how bad do you want to be successful? <laughs> and I'm like, want to be successful, Dad. Really want to be successful. Want to be a millionaire, son? I want to be a millionaire, Dad. And uh, so he put my head under the water and hold my head under the water. And I'm like, obviously trying to get out of the water. I'm like, what's he doing? I'm like, and I'm down there, like what felt like ages, but probably not long at all. And then I came out of the water like, <sighs> and he goes, so how was that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, so when you were down there, what was the only thing you were thinking about? And I'm like, breathing? <laughs> and he goes, exactly. You've got to want to succeed as much as you want to breathe. Hmm. You don't want to succeed as much as you want to breathe. Don't even start Christian. Go work on Monday to Friday. Go work in Tesco. Live for the weekend. If you don't want to succeed as much as you want to breathe, do not even start. And then that's where I kind of thought, okay, cool, I'm going to start. I need to breathe. I need to breathe. So, <laughs> and then I went home and I needed to suss out what I was going to do. So yeah. that's when the 24 hours of a day came in. Uh -huh. And I sat down with my dad, like, how I was going to split up my day. So even right now, I'm still routine. I'm still very much like that. And 
I always hate it when people come up to me and go like, oh my God, I don't have enough time in the day. Yeah, like I don't have enough yeah. time in the day. Like <laughs> everyone's got 24 hours. Like it's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. I would love to have 25 hours. I'd love to have 26 <laughs> hours, but I can't have that. I've only got 24. Yeah. So my dad said to me, right, Christian, there's 24 hours in a day. Eight hours of that to get the best out of your day, you need to sleep. So eight hours gone. The next eight hours to pay your bills, to pay your mortgage, to have a life and have fun and have money, you need to work for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Give or take a few. Agreed. I'm like, mm-hmm. so that leaves eight. Eight hours. What are you going to do in those eight hours? Are you going to play Xbox? Go to the cinema with your girlfriend? Go see the boys? Mm-hmm. For eight hours? It's pretty much a day off. <laughs> like, I mean, so many people tell me, oh, I don't have enough time in the day. If you're disciplined and you're routine and you know what you're doing, you've got eight hours every day to do whatever you want. So what I did was for the best part of five years of my life, for my eight hours, I spent another eight hours on my business. So I spent double the time. So that's why I'm probably as successful as I am at this age because I did a lot of hours a day on, 16 hours a day on my brand. But I slept for eight hours, so I was ready for that. But then now, because I can take, my foot is still on the gas, but I can open up with an extra eight hours. So now I can go and see my friends, do fun things, have a bit of a social life, but I had to work really hard and give up those eight hours yeah. before I could do that. Yeah, yeah, success is really an accident, <laughs> Christian. <laughs> so if, if you had the opportunity to speak to the 20-year-old you, uh-huh. what would you say? Um, stay away from girls. <laughs> Honestly, I would. Really? <laughs> Focus on your career. Yeah. <laughs> my dad always told me about dating. He always said, like, I'm not telling you not to have a girlfriend, but they will, what did he say? They will uh, make your life quite difficult and and it will be harder for you to focus on your career. And right now I don't have a girlfriend and girls still make my life difficult. <laughs> so it's, uh, he was dead right, he was dead right. <laughs> Excellent. And final question I have for you, if you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? In my life? Anything. It's up to you. Uh, I wouldn't change anything in my life. It's quite a ballsy statement, that, but I think everything that I've done has happened for a reason, and um, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't go through the hardships or the good ships. Yeah. Um, anything I would change? Yeah, so so I, I suppose then the, the question in the outer world, is there anything that you would change? I would change. Um, it's a good question. <laughs> um, what would I change? <laughs> um, I would make private pri- private planes more accessible <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> I hate waiting in the airports for two hours, man. I'm like, give me a private jet. Oh my god! Or like have a bit of a like. Oh, it's gonna cost you this if you want to get like a one way ticket. So yeah, yeah, make private planes more accessible so people could travel in their pajama bottoms. PJ and a PJ. That's phenomenal. <laughs> I, I suspect that'll be the only time that I hear that as an answer to that question, but I love that. PJ, PJ, remember that. Oh my. Brilliant. Christian, thank you so much thank for you today. For it's been uh, you know, enormously entertaining. Um, you know, I, I love listening to you talk, but you know, you're so you're so driven, you're so ambitious, and to just throw kind of caution to the wind and and not allow what other people perceive as their own limitations to be forced on you. It's just, it's such, it's so incredible. It's, it's, thank it's, you. It's brilliant. Appreciate so, that. You're welcome. So again, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers.